What's up, church? Hopefully you're having a great weekend. Um, well, let's see. This was about three years ago. Okay, I was, uh, my buddy Matt and I, we went out fishing on Lake Erie on one Saturday morning. And when we got back to his house, I was getting ready to leave. I got in my car, which is really nice. I've told you guys before, 2007 Saturn Ion. All right, top of the line, mint condition. Um, so I got in my, my car and um, as I was getting ready to pull out, you know, I'm doing the responsible thing. I'm looking down the road. No one's coming this way. They live out in the country in the middle of nowhere. I'm looking down this way. Nobody's coming. And so, like, I'm in the clear. And so I back out. And as I'm turning, my front end of my vehicle goes and turns into his mailbox, which then flattens it. And, uh, and, I, and I hit it. And his mailbox falls down. And it kind of gets, like, jammed up under my car. It's like this big old thing. And so I'm like, like, you ever just do that where you do something dumb? And you're just like, oh, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you've all felt that feeling? You're like, man, if I could just go back five seconds. If I get my five seconds back, then I could go, and I'd make sure that didn't happen. Or if the car was only six inches this way, I wouldn't have hit the mailbox, where I would have seen the mailbox in the mirror. And even if I did see it, it didn't matter because I wouldn't have hit it because I was six, or six inches over. You know what I'm talking about? You ever have that? We're just like, oh, this is killing me. And so in that moment, I have a decision I got to make. Do I take off and hope that no one sees me, you know, or do I pull back in the driveway, get out of the car, walk up to Matt, who's in the backyard, and say, Matt, I just smoked your mailbox, I'm sorry, you know, let's, let's, I'll help you, like, put it back together or get that thing back in. And so in that moment, I took off as fast as I could, <laughs> and I left, and I thought to myself, I'm like, he's a grown man, okay, the dude can handle his own mailbox. And so I left, and when I got home, I'm like, what kind of damage? You know, I got, you got to survey the damage. Not that I care about this car necessarily that much. And, uh, and so I get out, and I'm surveying the issue. I'm, I'm doing the, kind of the look over at the front, and there's some issues, all right? It, like, pulled out my, my front bumper um, on to one side where the, where the mailbox kind of got stuck underneath. And so I'm like, oh, man, that's not good. But I was able to kind of shove that thing back in, and it Popped in, and I was like, perfect, okay, got that done, check. I had a bunch of his, his paint from his mailbox all over my bumper. Nothing spit in a rag wouldn't take care of, so I kind of buffed that out. It was good, almost, you know, good enough for me. But there was one thing that bothered me that was messed up on the front of my car. On the front of my bumper um, was this, like, really long black air intake thing. It was just a black piece of plastic, really. That, but it was the length of the bumper and kind of even went around the sides. And so that kind of came loose or dislodged, and it was hanging on there by a thread. So I'm like, okay, I got I to gotta fix this. And it's one of those projects where you ever start a project which should only take you like a short amount of time, but instead it just doesn't go well and it takes forever. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, we've all been there. So annoying, right? That's how this was. And so I'm like, okay, I'll just clip this thing back in. But then the clips were broke. And I'm like, oh, okay. So then I'm like going to get zip ties. I'm like, I'll zip tie this back in. And then I can't find anything to zip tie it to because the clips are broken. Just all this stuff. Eventually, I spend like, I don't, I don't even spend that much time. It's like 30 minutes. And I'm like, I got to go. And so I just kind of throw the thing in my garage. It's like this long. I throw that plastic piece in the garage. I'm like, I'll deal with it tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes a ghost. Don't mess with it. And then the week comes and goes. I didn't, I, I, I didn't mess with it. I didn't, I didn't try. And then for those first two weeks, when the car was like this, um, it really bothered me. 
Like every time I walked up to my car, I'm like, man, that looks terrible. You can see the radiator like hanging down. Like it's just, it's just not a good look. There's a reason why that's supposed to be there. And it just, it just bothered me. It makes me look like a bad driver, although it is my fault, you know. And I'm just thinking about it. I'm just like, man, this looks, this looks bad. But after about two weeks, you know what happened? I didn't really notice it anymore. Yeah, I kind of got, I really, I got used to it. I'd walk out, I wouldn't notice it. Once in a while, I would, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I got to take care of that. But then I'm thinking, I'm like, well, I barely even notice it, and I'm the owner of the car. Like, I knew, I, I even know that's not there, so that's probably why I'm noticing. No one else is really going to notice it. And uh, I still got that piece sitting in my garage even today, three years later. And sometimes uh, people, like every six months, they'll come up and they'll be like, you know, you're missing something in there. There's something, and I'm like, yeah, I know that. You noticed that? Oh, I didn't think you would notice that. And it still happens. What happened for me is that after about a couple weeks, I got tolerant of it. I got used to it to the point where I just didn't notice it anymore. See, the last couple weeks here at Grace, we've been going through the seven churches of Revelation. And we've been talking about, um, we've been doing a church a week. Today, we're going to be looking at a church in a city called Thyatira. And it's probably the most insignificant city out of the seven churches within the seven cities that we've been looking at. Um, this church probably has the smallest church of all the messages and all the letters to these churches that God is, is sending this message to. But what's interesting about it is Jesus has more to say to this church than to any of the others. And it's not necessarily a good thing. They have an issue. And their issue is they have gotten used to sin. They've just gotten used to it. It just doesn't feel like a big deal to them. They've become tolerant with sin. In their minds, it's like they got the sin issue in their life, and they're like, I'll just deal with it tomorrow. I'm not dealing with that today. And then they just, don't, they, just, they just got used to it. And what's interesting about it is that God hates it. He absolutely hates it. And so this is how it happened. Uh, John, who was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, uh, John uh, he's at the end of his life now. So he was hanging out with Jesus when John was like in his 20s. At this point in John's life, he's in his 90s. So this is decades after Jesus rose again from the dead and went up to heaven. And so John's in his 90s at this point. Uh, Rome had really cracked down hard on this whole new Jesus belief thing. And at this point in history, Paul has been killed. Okay, he got beheaded uh, by Rome. Peter has been crucified by Rome. Uh, you got James. He was one of the main church leaders. He got thrown off a building. I mean, that's not cool. Uh, probably all the other original disciples that we would know, the 12 disciples, are all dead at this point. They've all been killed off because, simply because they won't shut up about Jesus. And John is no different in the fact that he's feeling punishment from Rome as well. At this point in John's life, John, is he's been banished by the Roman government to this island called Patmos, again, simply because he won't shut up about Jesus. And so the history tells us that um, the people who were banished to the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea, that they, they worked in this prison camp. And on this prison camp, during the day, they would go work in the mines, particularly marble mines in that, um, on that island. And so can you picture that? All right, if you're in your 80s or 90s, can you picture getting up every morning and going, working in the mines? You know, that probably isn't ideal, <laughs> an ideal situation. That's what John is doing, okay? That's the type of thing that he is stuck there. He's kind of like a slave to the, to the government, and, um, and it's not a great thing for him. And so John tells us in the first chapter of Revelation 
all right, that book, the last book of the Bible, uh, he says that he's going through his normal routine, he's doing his normal thing, so he's like eating his Pop-Tarts, he's drinking his coffee, he's got the newspaper out. On a Sunday morning, he's getting ready to go, you know, he's doing his normal thing, getting ready to go out into the marble mines because that's where he works every day, and all of a sudden, bam, he is in the throne room of God. Again, we talked about this three weeks ago we went, when we went through Revelation through Revelation chapter 1. I mean, it's super interesting. One of the best passages in the entire Bible. And when he gets there, when, when this happens, just kind of instantly, he hears a voice talking to him from behind. And he turns around, and John describes what he saw. He saw a white-haired, fiery-eyed, glowing-skinned, sun-shining uh, face of Jesus. And what's John do? He doesn't go up and doesn't hug Jesus or shake his hand or anything like that. John says he falls on his face. Like a dead man, because he can't stand. And Jesus reaches over. He says, hey, don't be afraid. Hey, don't worry. All right, I want you to see what's going to happen, and I want you to write this stuff down. So John writes down what he sees, and John writes down what he's told. That, by the way, is the entire book of Revelation. That's what Revelation is. Now, originally he's writing to these seven churches um, that we're talking to, God um, at the beginning sends out specific messages to each church, and then the ending is, is for everybody. And uh, these seven churches are located in modern-day Turkey, and the Mediterranean Sea is like out this way, and Greece is up here. And uh, here's John, he's on the island of Patmos, and so these are the, these are the seven churches. And these churches, when Jesus sends, or gives this message to John, he does it in a kind of a clockwise motion because there's a messenger that's sending, that's going to the first church, and he's going around this way. So first we looked at Ephesus, then we had a message to Smyrna, then last week Mike, he talked here about Pergamos, and, uh, and today we're at Thyatira, so we're going around. And, um, and, and again, to Thyatira, God has the most to say to this small little church. And God has a specific message, message to each church. And what's interesting to me is what these churches are dealing with 2,000 years ago are a lot of the same issues that we're dealing with today, which makes what, what Jesus is telling them extremely relevant to each and every one of us, especially what he has to say to Thyatira. So um, let's get into it. Uh, Thyatira was uh, roughly around 30 miles southeast of Pergamum, which we talked about last week. Um, you can still see some of the ruins of Thyatira today. Um, Thyatira, the city in itself, is still standing. Uh, it's the modern-day city of Akasar. It has over 100,000 people living in it. And so that's kind of some of the old ruins that the church that Jesus is, or that Paul, or not Paul, that Jesus and uh, that John are writing to would have seen this kind of stuff um, from back in that day. And so uh, it's, it was known for agriculture, and specifically even more than that, it was known for, being, for their clothing manufacturing. Okay, so Thyatira, they're huge in the clothes. And uh, even more than that, they're also known for this, in this area for their purple dye because they had this like shellfish in that area that they would, I don't know how they would get it, like squeeze it, I don't know. But out of this shellfish, they would extract this purple dye, and then they would combine clothing and purple dye, and they would make purple clothes, which was like, like a, uh, a royal-type color and royal-type clothing, super, super expensive uh, to have, and not just something that your normal, everyday people would have. In fact, uh, we see that uh, in other parts of the Bible that Thyatira was known for their clothing. One time in the book of Acts, we see in Acts chapter 16 that Paul, he's in this huge city called Philippi, which is actually a pretty far distance 
from Thyatira. And in Philippi, one of the first converts, one of the first people who gives their lives to Jesus, becomes part of the church, this brand new church thing in Philippi, is this lady named Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth. That's how she made her money. And she was probably a pretty wealthy individual. Lydia was from Thyatira. Okay, just to try to connect some of that. And so this is what this city is known for. Uh, it was kind of a blue-collar working man's town that was super interested or super big into worshiping their fake gods. So along with all this clothing manufacturing all over the place, they also had all these temples. They had a temple to Artemis. They had temples all over the place. They had a temple to Apollo. I mean, that was big. And so this was not an easy place to be a Christian. And so Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, he's looking at John, and he says, John, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Now remember this word for angel, it literally means messenger, which means he's saying write to the messenger or write to the pastor or write to the leader of the church in Thyatira. Not that it was for just the leader, this message is for the whole church. He says, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. By the way, this isn't like meek, weak, lame Jesus here, okay? This isn't the Jesus petting lambs. This isn't soft Jesus. This is Jesus introducing himself, saying, hey, I see everything. See, when Jesus introduces himself this way, I mean, this is kind of like one of those things where like, okay, you better buckle up because he ain't messing around. This is a big deal. He says this, I know your works. All right, remember, we've talked about this word no. It's a, it's a personal no. It's not like I heard about your works or I read about your works or someone told me. No, this is I, I know. He's saying, I've seen your works. I know what you're doing. I watch you. I am studying you. I examine you, which is a reminder for us. He knows us, the good things about us, the bad things about us. And he starts, he starts listing some of this stuff out. He's like, I know, I know the things that you do. I know your love. I know your faithfulness. I know your service. I know your endurance. He says, I know even that your last works are greater than the first. See, he starts off here, and he's like, man, I, I know you guys. I know your reputation. You guys serve. You feed the poor. You do all this stuff around town. You're just like really, really, really good at that spiritual stuff. Like, here's Jesus. He's saying, man, if I were to ask anybody in town, like, what do you think about the church? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, the church in Thyatira. Man, I love the church. They're such nice people. They accept everybody. Anybody could go there, and everybody feels welcome there. They're just, like, they're just really, really good people. And this is good stuff. And what's crazy about it to me is here's God of the universe acknowledging it. Right? Like, these are real people. In a real town, in a real church. Here's God writing a, like, real legit message to them. Like, God. Right? Pretty big deal. And he starts off, he's saying, man, I know your love. Your faithfulness. Your service. I know you. I know all the good stuff that you do. Like, that's pretty impressive, in my opinion. Like, I mean, these guys, they must really be doing some good stuff. Right? And even he even says, he's like, and you guys are getting better and better and better. You guys are doing more and more and more. Like when it comes to doing good, these people are like people who we should aspire to be. They're love. We want love. They're faithfulness. We want faithfulness. They're growing. They're doing more. They're becoming better and better and better people. And here's God. He starts off their message, this message to this church, and he's saying, I just want to let you guys know, I see it. I'm watching. I've noticed. Then he says, but I have this against you. See, he's saying, but there's an issue 
that we could take out. You could do all the best stuff, but there's still ways that you can get better. He's saying there's still an issue, and this issue is going to be kind of on the inside. He says, here's the deal. You guys tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, if you're new to Christianity or maybe you just don't know that much about the Bible, which is, you know, Jezebel is kind of obscure uh, uh, character, kind of way out in the Old Testament. And this is who Jesus is referring to. You're going, who's Jezebel? What's going on? What's that mean? Like, they tolerate the woman Jezebel. You know, was that, what's going on here? Um, basically, what Jesus is doing here is he's referring all the way back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel, they had a king, it was an evil king named Ahab. Ahab's wife, so queen, uh, her name was Jezebel at one point. And, uh, and this lady had some major, major issues. She was an evil lady. She was an evil queen. We've been, actually, we've been talking about it recently in AJ's class. So if you've been to AJ's class, you, you've heard about Jezebel. Um, she's, just, she's, just, she's just messed up. Uh, number one, she worshiped fake gods, okay? So she refused to worship God. She worshiped all these fake gods. She got her husband, King Ahab, to also worship her fake gods. Not only her husband, she got the entire nation of Israel worshiping these fake gods. On top of that, she went out and she murdered every single one of God's prophets that she could get her hands on. In fact, Elijah, one of the most well-known prophets in the Old Testament, uh, they were contemporaries of each other. She was trying to kill Elijah throughout most of Elijah's entire life. In fact, one time Elijah, he cries out to God, we hear, and he's just like, God, I'm the last prophet left. He's like, I'm the only God, I mean, I am the last God follower in the entire nation of Israel because of Jezebel. I mean, this lady was messed up. She um, was, just, was into witchcraft, the Bible tells us. She, she was okay with child sacrifice. Some of the gods that she worshiped, that she kind of pushed on to the Jewish people to worship, they were gods that required, I mean, these are fake gods, obviously. But within those beliefs, they required child sacrifice, meaning you would take your kid, you would slaughter your kid on the altar of this God, and, uh, and, and that would be you worshiping. I mean, it's just, it's just terrible. She was all about that. I mean, this was like the worst of the worst. This lady was like straight evil. So if you're like pregnant and you're looking for a good name, just throwing it out there, Jezebel may not be the best name for you. Uh, maybe you know Jezebel, and I'm sorry I said that, but I don't know. Not a great name in the Old Testament or New Testament, I might add. So here's the woman that Jesus is referring to. Her name's not Jezebel. Like, that's not her actual name. What Jesus is doing is he's referring to a lady within this church who is in the same situation as Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament. He's saying, he's telling the church, he's saying, you guys have an issue. You have a Jezebel in your church. And you're okay with it. You've learned to tolerate it. And this lady's not just a member, like, coming in the back doors, sitting in the seats, like, you know, just kind of checking things out. No, this is a lady who's a leader within the church, and it's causing big issues. He says, this lady, she calls herself a prophetess. You know what a prophetess is? Okay, this is basically someone who says, hey, God told me to tell you, right? Um, Sometimes it's kind of interesting. Sometimes I have somebody come up to me <laughs> after church or something. They'll be like, hey, just want to let you know, um, God told me to tell you. And usually it's something about Blaine's music. I don't know why. It's like, <laughs> God told me to tell you. And they're serious, like, that you should play the songs I like. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, really? Okay. God didn't tell me, you know. So I don't know what to do with that. 
But here's the lady. She's kind of doing the same thing. She's using God, okay? She is using God to get her way. She's saying, hey, I speak for God. Like, like, like God's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what God has told me. God told me to tell you. Um, that's what a prophetess is. And, she's, and he's saying, and not only that, she's saying that stuff. She's using me. God's saying, and then she teaches and she deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality, which is a big thing in today's culture, and to eat meat sacrificed to idols, which is not a big thing in today's culture. Now, let me explain exactly what's going on here. Um, back in the day in Thyatira, the way this culture and the way this city worked is they had uh, probably the closest thing I could think of uh, to or relate to today is like unions, okay? So they had these unions or clubs for each um, each industry that, uh, that, that people were a part of. And everybody was like a part of this stuff. So if you were a wool worker, meaning you worked with wool, right, you had your union. Uh, they had leather workers union. They had dyers union. They had the unions of the people that would go get the shellfish and crush them or whatever they would do to get that purple dye. They had unions for those. They had uh, potters unions and unions for the bakers. And just everybody, every industry was a part of these little clubs and a part of these little unions. In fact, um, Thyatira is not a very big city. Again, it's the smallest city out of the seven cities, not a major city by any, um, by any means. But they had more commercial unions than any other Roman city on the planet. And Rome owned like the world at this point. So, right, so this was a big, big, big deal within their culture. And so if you wanted to develop status or move up in your life, um, in, you know, politically or within your career or within your personal life, anything, you had to join a union. That's just how it was. And if you wanted to belong to a union, you had to meet certain expectations. Uh, these unions, each union ha would have a guardian god, right? Because that's cool. If you're going to have a union, you have all these extra gods that you believe in. You might as well grab a god and make him your, your god. And so each, each uh, union had these union gods that you would have to worship. Not only that, but they would also have festivals and feasts, feasts where you would eat food that would be offered to your union God, and then you would eat the food on the table as if it was a gift from your God, right? So even eating the food, which is what he's referring to here, it's almost like you're worshiping that God. And then after the feast, it got even worse. After the feast, uh, I guess I'd say, how do I explain it? They just do a bunch of sexual stuff, okay? So you'd all eat with all your coworkers and feast and party it up, and then you'd all go into the bedroom with all your coworkers and you would party it up, and it was frowned upon to skip on, okay? So you had to go to, like, do everything. If you can imagine, it was just, it's just really, really, really bad. And so if you were a Christian, and if you want to belong, if you wanted to develop status, if you wanted to advance in your career, you had all this pressure that you had to be a part of these unions, which everybody throughout the city was a part of. And so here's the issue. You have this influential lady within this church helping lead this church who is actually using God, right? God told me to tell you. He says, she's using God to say, he doesn't care if you worship those fake gods. Why, why would God care? You don't have to meet it. Right? Like, he doesn't care if you have sex with anybody afterwards. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't care about that. You just, you're just being a good member of your union. Right? In fact, they would argue, this lady would argue that the best way to represent God or the best way to show God's love is to be a really good union member in which you have to do all this stuff. And really what's worse, what seems to really bother Jesus a lot here is that the church knows it's wrong but hasn't done anything about it. The church is allowing her to hang around, even allow her to teach 
this stuff. See, this church was highly effective in allowing people to see them as a place where they are loved and cared for, which is good. All right, but they're also a church that doesn't want to hurt anybody. They're also a church that doesn't want to offend anybody. By the way, can I just say this? This book right here, the Bible, it offends all of us. It does. All right? It's not good news for all of us in the fact that it convicts us, right? It shows us where we are wrong. It tells us we're wrong. It's offensive to everybody in every culture because every single one of us, we are sinners. And so this church was highly effective in allowing people to see them as a place where they are loved and cared for, but just not a place where they, people were biblically convicted of sin in their life. That is an issue. See, this church valued being inclusive, which we should all value being inclusive. Here, Grace, here. All right? We welcome everybody. All right? No matter what you believe, no matter what you think, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, all right? no matter if you're dirt poor or if you are super rich, it doesn't matter all right, what's going on in life. It doesn't matter how we're different. Um, it, that, none of that matters. It, we are open to anybody. We want every single person that we can get a hold of to give their life over to Jesus. It doesn't matter about all the other stuff. See, this church was very, very inclusive. They valued being inclusive, which we should as well. But for them, in an effort to be inclusive or an effort to be an inclusive church, they gave up their biblical identity, which we can never do. See, I don't think this church was necessarily promoting this lady and going, hey, you should go to Jezebel's class or whatever her name was, you know. I, I don't think that's what's going on. But they're not fighting it either. They're tolerant of her. See, tolerance was a really, really big deal in their culture. Can we all probably safely agree that tolerance is kind of a big deal here in our culture? We agree with that? Not so sure. Okay, a few. Okay. Um, right? Okay, there we go. I need a little bit more participation, please. Um, it's a big deal here. Just like it was, just like it was there. Um, here's, here's the deal. Um, let me say it this way. Tolerance is not a biblical value. Can I just like set the, set the record straight on this? Tolerance is not a biblical value. You could go look it up, all right? I would love, okay, go find it where it is. It's not in here. I've looked. I've looked all over. It's just, it's just not in here. You know what is a biblical value? Love. That's all over in here. Love and tolerance are not the same things. Our culture doesn't see it that way. Our culture fights against those things. Our culture says, well, if you don't tolerate, then you don't love. That is not what the Bible teaches Okay, the Bible teaches that tolerance and love are very different. We are not to tolerate each other. We are to love each other. We shouldn't be okay with sin in our lives, and we shouldn't be okay with sin in each other's lives, but we are. See, if you're dealing with some type of sin, specific sin, and let me just say this. We all deal with sin. We all know that. Okay, you're no better than me. I'm no better than you. Okay, that's just how it is. Um, we all deal with sin. But if you're dealing with like specific sin, like something specific, like maybe for you it's like an alcohol addiction thing, or maybe it's porn, okay, and you just can't stop looking at it. Or maybe for you it's like anger issues. Or, or maybe, check this out, maybe it's just like straight up laziness. You know what I'm talking about? Like 
You just don't do that much in life. You kind of sit around a lot. You're just not a hard worker. That, by the way, the Bible says is a sin. Or maybe for you, it's just like straight up pride. You think you're good. You think you're, you think you're all that and you're not. All right? That, those things probably cover the majority of the sin that we all deal with in this room right there. But if that's you and you're dealing with some of those specific things and you're just kind of okay with it, and by that I mean you just have no, like you have no plan to stop. Like you might even know it's wrong, but you just have no plan to stop, all right? Like you're not dumb, okay? You, you know it's wrong, but you, you know it breaks the heart of God, but the problem is it just doesn't break yours, like that type of thing. In fact, maybe for some of you, you've been dealing with it for so long that it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like my car's bumper, <laughs> you know, where you know it's not right, but you don't even notice it anymore. Like you just learn to kind of tolerate the sin in your life. Here's what you got to understand. The Bible tells us this. Sin is not good for you, right? Sin is not good for you. Sure, it might, might make you feel good momentarily or for, for temporarily. All right, I totally get that. I totally understand. But sin, the, I mean, the consequences of sin in the long term, it is really terrible for you. In fact, sin, a lot of times, is, I mean, sin's kind of like a beach ball. You ever take a beach ball into like a pool? Some of you guys got a pool. I'm jealous. Um, we don't even have enough room for a pool anymore in our yard. <laughs> but you ever take a pool, you ever take like a beach ball into a pool and you push it down underwater? We've all done this, okay? Or if not, you can imagine, I'm sure. It resists, right? Because it wants to float up to the surface. And you can keep it down there for, you know, for a long period of time because it's just not that hard. And, uh, and that's kind of what we do with sin. Sin's just kind of always there. Instead of throwing it out, we just kind of keep it around, and it's just always kind of resisting us. Everything that we do, every movement that we go, wherever we want to go, it just kind of always kind of drags us down. It always kind of resists us, and, and we can get used to, we can learn to tolerate kind of keeping it pushed down, and we can tolerate the resistance, but eventually we're going to let go, and it's going to fly up in our face. That's what sin does every single time. And so for us, we can love and we should accept everybody, but we do not tolerate sin. We accept the people for who they are. We do not accept sin in our lives first, but also in each other's lives as brothers and sisters. And if you think about it, this is the most loving thing for us to do is to point out some issue within our friend's life that they're dealing with. Because that sin wants to take them down. We should help them in whatever way we can to get out of that. See, sin never finds itself satisfied until it has destroyed you. Because we have an enemy. And it's real. And Jesus is saying, that's the problem with me. And the problem is, we're okay with it, but God isn't. See, this church is allowing this lady to promote big-time, intentional, willful sin in the name of tolerance and Christians were following her. And so Jesus says, he says, so I gave her time to repent. I mean, here's this lady. She's doing all this terrible stuff. He equates her with Queen Jezebel from the Old Testament. I mean, she is, this lady is bad. But what's he do? He gives her time and chance after chance after chance after chance because that's his mercy. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to crack down on us. He wants to help us see the light. And so he gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. She doesn't want to give that up. And so he says, fine. He says, look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. By the way, affliction equals bad. We get that? 
Okay, it does. Um, that's not something good. He's saying, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, I'm, she's going to get sick, and she's going to be stuck in her bed. All right? And, um, and those people who follow her and those Christians who have been deceived by her, he's, he gives them a way more vague like, punishment. He's like, he's like they're just going to have a bunch of affliction in their life. They're going to have a bunch of hard stuff. Their life is about to get really, really hard unless, he says, they repent of her work. So even, like, even now he's like, hey, unless they stopped and then I'll relent and then I will allow that to, to come out of their life. And then I'm all for them. He says, I will strike her children dead. That sounds kind of harsh. By the way, he's not talking about like her physical, real baby, like baby kids or anything like that. He's talking about the people who are following her. So he's almost like spiritual children in a sense. He's saying, I will strike her children dead, meaning that some of these people within the church that are following her into this like, you know, union stuff, like sexual immorality and eating this meat that was sacrificed to idols and worshiping these fake gods, even though they are a Christian, he says, some of those people I'm pulling out of the game. Which, by the way, God has the full right to do because he owns us. He doesn't owe us another moment. And so he's like, this is so bad. And this is such a terrible reputation of me. He's saying, I'm pulling some of these people out of the game. And when I do that, he says, all the churches will know that I'm the one who examines the minds and the hearts. If you're a Christian in here, that should freak you out. He's saying, I know what you think, and I know what you want on the inside, and that ain't always good. He says, and I will give to each of you according to your works. See, this is the type of talk we don't like to hear about <laughs> or talk about, right? Like, God's wrath. <laughs> Let's talk about that some Sunday. That's going to be, you know, a real <laughs> upbeat Sunday. See, this is what I feel like. I feel like many of us Christians, when, when it comes to God's wrath or God's anger, it's like something that we view as an attribute to God that, um, if exposed, would just give God a lot of bad press. You know what I'm talking about? Like, this is kind of how we view. And I think a lot of us, we almost view ourselves as like God's marketing team, where it's like, okay, I know wrath and stuff and anger, like that's in the Bible, but, uh, but God, I just don't feel like that's the thing we want out, so we're going to kind of we're going to hide that under wraps, and we're going to present your love, and we're really going to focus on, on your mercy and just all, this other, all these other things that are equally as valid about God. And, uh, and so we purposely don't talk about God's wrath. There's a lot of churches, a lot of churches even in our area that won't talk anything about God's wrath or God's anger. I mean, even think about the songs that we sing through. And I'm not saying this is wrong. We should be singing about God's love. We, I'm all into God's love, right? Like, I've been personally benefited from God's love, and I will even more in the future. And so I'm all about God's love. But, like, when was the last time you heard a song that was all about God's wrath? We don't sing those. <laughs> no one wants to sing them. We don't want to think about it or talk about it. But the Bible is not afraid to mention God's wrath. Like, God's wrath is a real legit thing. The Bible actually mentions it over 600 times. And so when we think of wrath, I think our biggest issue is we think of wrath out of anger, almost like an out-of-control anger or, or a selfish wrath. And the reason why we think that is because we're thinking about our, the, way, the way we get angry, out of control, selfishly. God's different. He's got righteous wrath. He's got holy wrath. In fact, some could argue that God's wrath is really his love on display because you know what he did 2,000 years ago is he poured out his wrath on himself and he took that and it cost him because of his love 
for us just to give us the chance to follow him. And so I would argue that the more we understand his wrath, the more we can understand his love. See, God has righteous, good, loving, holy wrath. And this lady and the people who follow her, they're about to experience a little bit of it because they tolerate sin. And the church is tolerant of her, although not everybody has gone along with it. He says, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, he says, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan. Here's Jesus. He's kind of putting this in quotes. He's like, you know, this, th these people who followed this lady because this lady says, I speak for God now. Um, these people think that they're, they're getting some like secret knowledge to grow deeper and deeper with Jesus, but actually they're diving deeper and deeper into the things of Satan. See, that's what Satan is. Satan is our enemy. Satan, by the way, is real, and he's extremely tricky. He ain't dumb. He knows how to get us. He knows how to trick us. And by the way, can I also say this, that the lost people around us who don't share our values, which is all around us, right, um, who, these people are controlled and manipulated by sin. Those people out there, they're not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. The one who has the secrets of Satan, the one who tries to pull us in, the one who's tricky, always trying to trip us up. See, for a lot of us, I think when we realize that Satan's our enemy and not the people around us, even the people who, who bash our church, even the people who bash you for being, a, for being a Christian, even people who support all the things that we as a Christian, we should never, ever support in our culture, right? When you realize that those people are not the enemy, that Satan's the enemy, they're just buying into a lie, it changes your understanding, where you don't view the lost around us as the enemy, would you start to view those people as the prize? Because that's what they are. The people that we are supposed to win and pull back and help them find Jesus. He says, for those people who accept everybody but do not tolerate sin, and they're not afraid to say, he says, I'm not putting any other burden on you. He says, only hold on to what you have until I come. He says, the one who conquers, or right, the one who resists the temptation to tolerate everything and who keeps my works to the end, he says, I will give him authority over the nations. He says, and he will rule them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like pottery. He says, just as I have received this, from my father. Now, what's he talking about here? He's saying, hey, someday, and he's alluding to something that's going to happen in the future, which he actually explains more in the book of Revelation at the end of Revelation. He's saying, someday, me, Jesus, as I am, I'm fiery-eyed, I got the bronze skin, I got, you know, the white hair. He's like, someday I'm coming down, and I'm coming back to earth, and I'm going to rule here on earth. And guess what you Christians, you believers get to do? That's us, by the way, if those of us who have given our lives over to him. Most of us in this room, he's saying, guess what you get to do? You get to reign with me. It's about to be sweet, right? He's like, you get to help me rule. You get to help me reign. Personally, I'm really looking forward to that day, all right? Because I hope I get a big territory. Maybe Ohio, that'd be awesome. Why not hope? I asked that, you know, maybe he'll answer me. He's saying, you get to help reign with me. He says, but not only that, even better, he says, I will also give him the morning star. Now, what's the morning star? Every time the morning star is mentioned in the book of Revelation, it refers to Jesus himself. Here he is, 
picture this. He's saying not only someday will, will you get to reign and rule alongside with me, which is awesome. He's like, someday, even more than that, he's like, you get me. He's like, I give myself to you. You get to be with me. See, he's looking to some, he's looking to the future and he's like, you don't understand how good it's going to be for you. And then he says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He's like, listen to me. See, Jesus is saying to the few who takes in seriously, which probably isn't that many of us, if we're honest with ourselves. He says, this isn't it. Remember that I am coming, and someday you are going to reign and rule with me. And someday, even more than that, you get me. All you got to do is you just got to hold on, man. Here's Jesus to you today saying, you got this. That's who we want to be. And so what do we do? We battle. Day in and day out, we struggle and we battle against the sin in our life. And we deal with a lot of it together. As a church, and we struggle, and the Bible tells us to struggle well. And someday Jesus himself will reward us. He's saying someday that's what I want you to look towards, and that's what I want you to hold on to, and that's what I want you to look forward to. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. Um, Lord, a lot of this stuff isn't things that we like to talk about or even talk about much, but it's equally as true. God, we thank you that for some reason, I don't quite understand it, but you love us so much that you came to die for us. And on top of that, God, you give us the, the promise of we get to be with you someday. We get you someday. All we got to do is hold on. All we got to do is take sin seriously. And yeah, it's a battle and it's not an easy thing in our life and we, have to, and we struggle. But the struggle is actually good for us. God, please help us to remember who the true enemy is. Please help us to battle against the sin in our life. We need your help. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.